The word of God from Luke 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Melanie. Would you stand a while longer as we um, pray a prayer of illumination? Heavenly Father, we know you to be kind. We know that you are gracious and merciful. Would you now grant to us another portion of your mercy and grace and illumine the sacred scriptures, that our hard hearts would be soft, that we could understand your word, that we would see you as beautiful and believable, and that we would follow you. Come be with your people as we study your word. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, fam. I've never had the pleasure of meeting you. My name's Ronnie. I'm the lead pastor here at Denver Prez. And uh, today's the first Sunday of Lent, and so I thought we would begin a new sermon series, and we are going to study the parables of Jesus. You know, as Jesus would teach, he told stories, and they were powerful, and sometimes they were cryptic. But in all cases, Jesus taught about the truths of God through parables. And so we're going to take some time in this Lenten season to just study a few of them. And this morning, we're going to study that famous parable of the Good Samaritan. Before I do, I kind of want to on-ramp us with some basics. 
See, Christianity is a religion that does not fit well with other religions. And why? Because Jesus was not simply a good teacher. As we had been learning the last several weeks, he claims to be God. He claims to be the king of the world. And he's demanding loyalty from every single person. And as he walked this planet 2,000 years ago, he began to establish his kingdom and to recruit followers. And he achieved this goal by teaching parables. And Jesus was not simply trying to make us better people or nicer people. He was demanding our allegiance and faith. And, and I begin with this brief explanation because the story of the, of the Good Samaritan is one of the most popular and well-known stories in the whole Bible. And some people think that this parable teaches us how to be good neighbors. Others say that it teaches us how to, how to participate in random acts of kindness and that we should help people in need. And if that is what you think this parable teaches, then you've misunderstood Jesus and you've misunderstood his plan. And perhaps worse, you have deceived yourself into believing that you can accomplish the demands of this parable. You've naively believed that you can love like this Samaritan. Now, this parable does something different. This parable indicts us, especially if we think we're good people who love others well. See, most of us have this incessant need to say that we are good people and that God will accept us based on our moral performance. Uh, when I lived in Puerto Rico, one time I was at the beach and I you know, started small talking with this guy just looking at the waters and you know, he asked the fateful question, what do you do for a living? And I had to tell him, I'm a pastor, and it's always a little bit awkward for people. He was hoping I would, I would say something like venture capitalist or something, but there I am. I'm a pastor. And uh, for whatever reason, when people learn that I'm a pastor, they feel compelled to give me their spiritual resume or whatever, or avoid it or run. That happens sometimes too. But uh, So there he is giving me his spiritual resume, and he said very conclusively that he was going to heaven. I thought that was a really kind of interesting thing to say. Didn't see that kind of coming or certainly didn't ask anything similar to that. And so I was like, just politely and gently, I was just like, hey, so tell me, that's interesting. Why are you so sure? And this young guy says, well, because I have like saved someone's life. Like he rescued a guy. And it was interesting in that answer, he thinks that that courageous act of heroism, and it was indeed a courageous act of heroism, that it gives him enough credit to sort of purchase a ticket into heaven. Yeah, and I'd, I'd never heard someone say it like so explicitly uh, before, but I imagine that that response isn't too much different than what a, a lot of people actually believe, even if they don't say it, that they can actually accumulate credit. Well, the parable of the Good Samaritan is written into that kind of conversation. As we're going to see, the parable of the Good Samaritan is an answer that Jesus gives to a religious lawyer. See, the lawyer thought he understood God. He thought that God was happy with him. And Jesus perceives the lawyer's erroneous view of God, and so 
calls them to this impossible, selfless love. He calls them to this love like this good Samaritan. And just like the lawyer, some of us, some of us are pleased with our moral integrity and our social acceptability, and we need to be retold this story so that we can be stripped down to the bare inadequacies of our own self-generated righteousness. And only then might we come to repentance. This story is not intended to provide a moral example. Rather, the purpose was to strip away the lawyer's and ours false security and a lower standard of righteousness. We have this tendency to trust in our own efforts to make us right with God and to earn his favor and reward. You know, in a Gallup poll, this was taken just a few years ago, but in this Gallup poll, 90% of the population in the United States think they are more loving than the average person. Now, I imagine the lawyer in the story also thought that he was more loving than the average person. Most people think they know what love is. Most people think it's just common sense. But here's the catch. Jesus interrupts our very small view of love. So today we're going to find that Jesus teaches us something very counterintuitive. Jesus is teaching us that real love does not begin until you realize that you can't really love. <laughs> I mean, don't you get it? Until you understand the impossible standards that love requires, you can never truly begin to love others. That, that is at the heart of our parable today. Jesus is not trying to give you an example of how to be a better person. He's trying to crush your self-sufficiency and your self-reliance. And Jesus wants you to love him and others by understanding first your inability to do it. So to see how Jesus is accomplishing this through this parable, we've got to examine two characters. First, we're going to look at this religious lawyer, and then we're going to look at the Good Samaritan. So those are our two points. Let's begin first with this expert of the law, this religious lawyer. Now, to understand this parable, we have to understand really the context in which it was written. See, there's a highly unusual context. So this lawyer is an expert in the Jewish law. Uh, you could think of it as if he was like a seminary professor. He is an authority of sorts. And the lawyer wants to trap Jesus with a question. And yet, this question is a sincere one, an important one. Look there at verse 25. Right away, the lawyer asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a big question. And that is not a new question. The Bible's interested in that question. Even in the, the book of Acts, uh, the, in chapter 16, it'll rec record this time when there's this Philippian jailer who gets freed and he has this conversation with the apostle Paul and Silas and he asks really the same question. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they say to him, they say, well, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, that seems straightforward. Why doesn't Jesus respond to this religious lawyer by saying, believe in me and be saved? Because that's not what he says. And here's why. 
Jesus is not just a religious teacher. He's not interested in just giving an academic answer. He actually wants to create the conditions so that the lawyer will surrender to Christ. And so Jesus responds with his own question, a kind of Socratic method here. So he says in verse 26, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Now at this point, instead of like sort of reciting the entire like Torah or Old Testament, the lawyer rather appropriately sums up the teaching of the moral law, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart and, uh, and, and then love your neighbor as yourself, he says. If you've ever studied the, the Ten Commandments, for example, you'll notice that the first four commandments are how to love God and then commandments five through 10, the last six, teach us how to love our neighbor. So this summary of the religious lawyer is excellent. It's excellent. And Jesus affirms this response. But by affirming it, it's kind of a trap that Jesus sets up. Jesus says, well, that's right. You're right. Just do that. Live a life of perfect love and you are set. <laughs> and then the most important thing happens in the text. So Luke, the author, records the most peculiar thing. Look at verse 29. He says, but he, or but the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Isn't that interesting that the lawyer wanted to justify himself? See, Jesus sees what's going on in this man's heart. Let me, let me interpret this for you. There is a massive amount of spiritual pride this lawyer wants to be reconciled with God through his own adherence to the law. See, he doesn't want Jesus. He wants control. And so the question remains, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And to this question, Jesus tells the most impossible story of the Good Samaritan. Now, I'm going to get to the details of the story here in a second, but that story won't make any sense until you understand this point, this part. Jesus points this man to the perfection of the law. In the law, we see the perfection of God's holiness, and we see our inability to achieve it. But this man doesn't get the point. And so Jesus tells a story to crush all hope that this man can fulfill the law. Well, how so? Well, what options face the lawyer? There's really only two. He can reject Jesus' teaching in the parable and thus forfeit eternal life that Jesus is offering. Or he can take Jesus up on the challenge to attempt to love in this lavish and impossible way as described in this parable. But he will soon realize, and we will too, that he cannot keep the second great commandment to love his neighbor. And that in turn exposes his failure to keep the first great commandment, to love God with all of his heart. By choosing either option, the lawyer and the reader, us, will find ourselves completely disqualified for eternal life. And this strips him and it strips us of any foolish hope of our self-generated righteousness before God, 
we are confronted with our desperate need for grace to be given something we did not earn or merit. This is a fascinating approach that Jesus takes to crush the hopes of the religious expert. See, because this is kind of different than our approach, right? Like if you could just like think of like uh, Christian messaging, uh, you know, it's probably not too uncommon to see a billboard that says, you know, God loves you, right? Or maybe commercials that are just promise, you know, promoting God is love, God loves you. And I think I understand like the instincts to that. God is indeed loving, wildly, lavishly loving. That is all true. Uh, but I wonder when that is out of context, if both religious and non-religious people are just bored with the slogan, God loves you. And do you know why? It's because when we hear that, we think to ourselves, of course, what's not to love? <laughs> we are, after all, more loving than the average person. <laughs> God is lucky to have us on his team. And even non-religious people kind of think about God in these, ter- in these kind of terms. I recently, though, I heard this story about this this group of um, college students on a campus, and they did something different to get the attention. They put up this banner on campus that said, God may not love you. I'm not baptizing that approach or anything like that, but I promise you when people read that banner, they weren't bored. This got an audience because it made people reconsider what do they believe? What, what is the texture of God's love after all? This is kind of how Jesus is treating the lawyer in this parable. See, the lawyer was pleased with his own moral integrity, so much so that he wanted to debate Jesus instead of worship him. And so Jesus takes him to the law, the law of perfect love, like the Samaritan, And it exposes in the lawyer his bare and inadequate view that he can be self-justified. And here's the point, everyone. There are two ways to enjoy eternal life. First, you can enjoy eternal life by living a life of consistent, unfailing love for God and neighbor, which, of course, is possible only in theory, but beyond the ability of any one of us. It's impossible. And so don't even presume like the lawyer did. Or, second, we can enjoy eternal life through recognizing our inability, by recognizing our sinfulness, by recognizing our lack of neighborliness and coming repentantly to Christ for forgiveness, for the gift of eternal life. We must be convinced of our own righteous condemnation, that that we are properly We should be properly condemned. And it would be righteous for God to do that. And when you come to grips with that, then you could give yourself to the mercy of God and nothing but the mercy of God. You know, sometimes um, we summarize the gospel like this. uh, the, The great Westminster professor, Jack Miller, he would say, cheer up. Your sin is far worse than you could ever comprehend. 
But at the same time, you are far more loved than you ever dared to hope. And see, this is so important. Jesus gives the story of the good Samaritan, which is a picture of the perfect law of love in order to crush the religious lawyer. If he's ever to appreciate and love Jesus, he needs to understand just how bad he is. And so Jesus crushes him, but with the hope that the lawyer will still become aware of what was always true, and that is his need for grace. And so, how about you? Does God love you? Why? Why does God love you? Do you think he loves you because you're just a good person? If that's what you believe, then you will never learn about love from Jesus. And you will never receive love from Jesus, and you yourself will never love him. Don't try to justify yourself. Instead, surrender to Jesus. Rest your hopes in the mercy of Jesus, not in your own merits. You are not perfect, and God demands perfection. And so you must rest all of your loyalty and all of your faith and trust in the perfection of Jesus. And that is what this parable wants to accomplish in you. And so this then is a good time to kind of turn now to the details of the parable. So let's move from the lawyer to our second point. Now let's look at the Samaritan. It's worth mentioning at the outset that the details of this parable provoked a sharp reaction to its first hearers. And let me explain why. So Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Jews considered Samaritans to be mutts, like half-breeds. They were worse than dogs. And the question is why? Well, what had happened is that the, the Samaritans had forsaken the Jewish way of life, and they had settled in the land of Israel during the Jewish exile. And during that time, they intermarried with pagans. And in so doing, they changed up a lot of their most treasured traditions. They even built their own alternate temple on Mount Gerizim and, and rejected the, the Temple of Solomon, you know, the one that David began and out of anger, in 128 BC, the Jews actually go to Mount Gerizim and destroy the temple. So it gets violent between these two groups. And because of their profound hatred, Jews and Samaritans did not associate with each other. Samaritans could not find work in Jewish communities. And Jews said that Samaritans were unclean and traitorous. In the first century, calling someone a a Samaritan came to be known like as a cuss word. Like, like, that's like, you don't say it in polite company. So like, it's interesting, earlier in, uh, in John chapter 8, there's this story about the, the Jews becoming really angry with Jesus. And so they accuse him of being possessed by a demon and being a Samaritan. <laughs> like they're thinking, what are the two most hurtful things we can say about Jesus? He's possessed by a demon and he's a Samaritan. Right? So there you are. And here's the weird thing. Jesus takes this cuss word of a name of a person and makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. So here's, here's quickly the details of the story. A priest and a Levite are on their way home 
from temple, right? a service in Jerusalem, right? They're, they're leaving church. Think about it like that. They're leaving church, lift, lifting holy hands, right? They, that stretch between Jerusalem and Jericho is about eight miles. And it was particular, or excuse me, it's 18 miles. Uh, and it's particularly dangerous because it's not totally developed. And so the bandits and pirates were known to attack travelers on that stretch. So the priest notices a man who was attacked, and he's even on the brink of death. And so what does the text say that he does? Well, the text says that when he saw him, he passed, this is verse 31, on the other side. And then that same action is repeated by the Levite. So those, the, the priest and the Levite, these are supposed to be the good guys, right? These are the religious people who obeyed the law. So why didn't the good guys help? Well, by law, the ceremonial law, they were not allowed to touch a corpse. And their rabbinic texts instruct that one must keep at least six feet from the corpse. And if they break this rule, they would really inconvenience themselves. And they would inconvenience themselves socially by becoming ceremonially unclean. That's why they went on the other side of the street. They would inconvenience themselves financially. They would be required to pay for the burial costs. And they would inconvenience themselves professionally by becoming unclean, and they would be barred from their priestly and Levitical services. And additionally, they didn't stop because it was dangerous, right? This man was robbed in a dangerous place. If they stopped to help, they would have been at risk too, right? It's like stopping at 3 a.m. in one of the harder parts of Denver, one of the more dangerous parts, right? But then the parable, the story, takes a turn. After these two religious people, who, by the way, technically adhered to the law, they failed to take care of this half-dead Jewish man. After they failed to take care of him, a sworn enemy of the Jews comes along. And what does he do? The sworn enemy of the Jews, the Samaritan, takes care of his enemy. So the story is a picture of surprising and impossible love. You want to inherit internal life? Then you have to decline any limits to love. You have to remove all barriers to sacrificial love. And how's that demonstrated in this parable? Well, the first thing that we notice is that loving your neighbor came at great cost to the one who was giving help. That is, the Samaritan had to suffer in order, for, in order to love this half-dead Jew. How so? Well, first, the Samaritan destroyed his own schedule. I mean, he has places to go, but he allowed his schedule to be interrupted by stopping to help this man. He uses his own oil and wine to care for the immediate needs of this man. He mounts the man on his own donkey, gets him to a safe place, where he can you know, continue to care for him properly. And then he provides you know, financial coverage. I mean, this man's broke, right? He was just robbed. He's got nothing. And the Samaritan gives the innkeeper two denarii, which you know, would have covered the costs at the inn for about two weeks. But then he doesn't even stop there. He says, put all the extra expenses on my account. <laughs> like, you know, if he calls for room service, I got it, right? <laughs> like, I'll come back and I'll pay on his behalf. You see what Jesus is doing by telling it this way? You see how he's redefining 
words like love and neighbor. It's extreme. The way he treats this is that this desperate, you know, stinky, unsightly enemy who has no ability to pay him back is really amazing. The lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? And Jesus introduces him to a neighborhood as big as the whole world. And the most difficult part of this parable is found in Jesus' final words. Verse 37, he says, you go and do likewise. That is to say, do this perfectly and you will be saved. Remember, this parable is an answer. It's the response to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You feel the weightiness of Jesus' mandate? See, our text this morning has two stories. The story about the religious lawyer and the story about the good Samaritan. The story of the good Samaritan has an ending. The story about the religious lawyer doesn't have an ending. We don't know what happens. And the question is, did the story of the good Samaritan crush his hope Did it crush the lawyer's belief that he can be saved by his own moral performance? Jesus is constantly demanding full allegiance and full love. But what kind of person will be loyal to Jesus and love him? It's a person who's been crushed first. That's who. You remember that story about the prostitute who washed Jesus' feet? That's not a parable. See, Jesus is having dinner with a bunch of Pharisees, that is, respectable religious people who obey the law, and then out of nowhere, this unclean prostitute breaks into the party that's very gender-specific, goes to the feet of Jesus and washes them with her feet, or washes his feet with her, with her, with her tears and with fine oil. And the Pharisees are horrified at the sight. And guess how Jesus responds? Like he loves it. He commends it. He, he says, and this is in Luke 7, he says, I, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is Forgiven little, loves little. And so he said to her, your sins are forgiven. That woman who sells her body for money was crushed by her own failures. She knew that God should properly, righteously condemn her and that her only option was to give herself to the mercy of Jesus. She was desperate. She was crushed, but she was loved. And because of it, man, she loved Jesus more than she loved anything else in this world. And so why is this so important? It's because God wants you to respond to this parable. And there's kind of two important ways to respond. First, he wants you to be crushed by it. 
He wants you to be crushed so that you might actually love him. If you've ever, if you have, if you have never been crushed by your own sin, then you're not a Christian. You could never love Jesus and appreciate what he accomplishes for you if you think you deserve it and are more loving than the average person. Remember, you are incapable of offering Jesus real love until you realize that you are incapable of offering him real love, you see. The prostitute loved Jesus because she was well acquainted with her massive failures and it made her loyal and it made her thankful. And the only people who come to Jesus are those who are desperate and who are at the end of themselves. You know, sometimes I pray for a little bit of suffering for my own children, a little bit of failure, so that they have to cling to Jesus, so that they feel their desperate need of him. See, if they're completely successful, then they'll begin to believe the lie, the lie that you can live a good life without Jesus. My children could become Pharisees, but I want my children to joyfully wash Jesus' feet with their tears. Here's the second thing that Jesus wants you to do from this parable. He wants you to be moved by the conduct of the Samaritan and to emulate it. Not, Not to earn your salvation, but just emulate the behavior, being a person who's been saved by grace. See, the Samaritan didn't see himself as the most important person in the world. And so he's willing to risk his own status and money and security to help others. And you know that the church, the Christian church, has always been known for 2,000 years, has always been known for deeds done for others who could never repay them. Because that's what Jesus does for us. You know, it's been such a privilege. For those of you who are new, we, Denver Prez has a Venezuelan task force, and they've begun to work. We're trying to get involved in the lives of people who are different than us, people who could never pay us back, who might even be on the brink of death, whatever it is. And if we do this right, we will generously just give our resources, the resource, like if you've ever given a cent to Denver Press, then you have given to Venezuelans who have no way of ever paying you back. We want to bless the socks off of the city. Like we want this city to like love that Denver Press is here because it's so generous for people who do not belong to its communion. We are always thinking about the well-being of others, people who don't belong here. We're constantly trying to give money to people who are not strategic, (laughs) right? Like we're not at any cool party just trying to like figure out who's, uh, who's who. The people that we're trying to love have no idea and there's no, there's no payout for us. We just do it generously because Jesus did it first for us. We're trying to do that, and we're doing that some, and we're going to keep growing in that. That's what I would pray. So many, there's several of you, five or six families of you are already helping Venezuelans, even apart from this task force. It's incredibly moving. We're going to do more of that. 
Let me just finish this sermon with just a few final thoughts. Thank you so much for your attention. Um, I know a lot of people uh, who help people in really extreme ways. They do try to live like the Samaritan, but then they burn out and they grow tired. And they even, dare I say it, begin to resent the parable of the good Samaritan because, you know, they've tried to love others. They've tried to be a good neighbor and it only results in pain. And in some cases, you know, people are even taking, taking advantage of their gospel generosity. So we got to ask the question, where do, we, where do we find the endurance to keep loving others sacrificially? And here's the key. And if you've zoned out, this is, this is probably the most important part. The story of the Samaritan is supposed to crush you, but it's also supposed to rebuild your crushed heart and to fill it with this unbreakable hope. See, the Samaritan, the, the hero of the parable, is not principally a character that you're supposed to copy. You are supposed to identify with that guy who's half dead on the street. That's who you are. Jesus is the Samaritan, not you. The Samaritan is actually a picture of what Christ has done for us. See, Christ found us lost sinners on the road of life, enemies with him, half dead, and nobody to care. Men did not help us. Religion did not help us. We could not help ourselves. And so he came to meet our needs. And it was all done because of his compassion for his enemies. This is what would lead the Apostle Paul in Romans 5 to say, while we were still weak and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And so this parable does not principally teach us about what we should do, although that's important, but rather it illustrates for us what Christ, your Savior, has already done for you. Jesus is the good Samaritan, the good Samaritan par excellence. And you cannot be a good neighbor to others until Jesus is first a good neighbor to you. We would have died, but Christ looked at us. And even though we were his sworn enemies, he bound up our wounds and paid all the costs for our restoration. Do you believe that? That's what makes you a Christian. That is the nature and the economy of the kingdom of God, the place where Jesus is the king. And only people who believe this will truly love Jesus. He is more than a teacher. He is a savior and a king. And he demands your full love and your full loyalty. Jesus didn't cross over to the other side of the street to avoid you. He went straight to you. He went straight to a cross. He warmed you with his salvation. What does the religious lawyer do with this story? We don't know, but here's what, we, what he should have said. Lord, I can't love. I'm bad at it. 
I am nothing. Jesus, be my everything. Would you make that your prayer? Jesus, I am nothing. Be my everything. And he will. Amen. Amen.